0: Hello everyone and welcome to What Is This Music? A podcast on the mysteries of musical taste. Why we love the music we love and hate what we hate. My name is Malcolm Fraser. On last week's episode with Mariana Timoney, which incidentally is one of the most popular episodes, uh, check it out if you haven't, uh, I was really confronted with this kind of DIY punk attitude of being against the musical mainstream, against pop, against the music industry machine. And on this week's show, I'm talking to someone who's made a whole series about celebrating that very thing, the pop music world. I'm still quite torn on where I sit in that debate, or maybe I'm still trying to find the yin and yang balance uh, of those two polarities. But I sure do enjoy a uh, talking about it and getting into it. Uh, Amanda Burt is the producer of a new series, This Is Pop, uh, here in Canada. It's airing weekly on CTV, and if you're not a regular watcher of uh, terrestrial TV, you can also catch it on uh, their website or their app. And in the rest of the world, I'm told that it will be streaming on Netflix at a date yet to be determined in the not-too-distant future. We had an interesting talk about pop and what it all means. I hope you enjoy it. So, uh, Amanda Burt, hi, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, so, you're a producer with Banger Films.
1: That's right.
0: And you're the producer of the new series. This is Pop.
1: That is also right.
0: Uh, okay, I'm glad we've I've got all my information <laughs> correct. Um, so, tell me about the show. This is Pop. I was quite intrigued when I when I heard about it.
1: Yeah, it's pretty epic, if I'm allowed to say that, which I guess that's my job, so I'll say it. It's pretty freaking epic. It's um, an eight-part docu-series, so eight individual documentary films about... I'm not going to say the greatest moments in pop history, but maybe some of the most pivotal and unknown and next-level moments in pop history. And... Uh, this is our first season and we just really went for it. So it's 70 years of pop history in eight hours and it's, um, it's pretty amazing show.
0: Yeah. It looks really interesting. Um, so, so tell me about, uh, the genesis of it. I mean, was this your idea?
1: No, in fact. Um, so yeah, as you mentioned before, I got hired by banger films going on. It'll almost be, it'll be three years this summer to come in and show run the show for them. But Banger's known, they've been around for about 15 years. They started off with a film called uh, Metal A Headbanger's Journey, which did- Sure,
0: classic classic doc. (laughs)
1: Classic doc. And actually it's funny, you know, 15 years ago or whenever that came out, 16 years ago, that was their first film, Scott and Sam, who founded Banger. And I was actually working at TIFF Uh, as a program assistant at Midnight Madness. So I met them then and did their Q and A's and was part of that scene. And so I saw that first doc and I thought it was super rad. And, you know, I went my way and did lots of things, including working at the CBC for many years and they built up their business and made amazing series and docs. And, um, And then our paths just crossed over the years. And when this came in their world as something that might happen, the pop show. They asked me if I'd come over and showrun it. And, um, one of the reasons that it was, that they were even offered the, um, possibility of making the show is that they made this amazing series, uh, called hip hop evolution, which did four seasons on Netflix. And if you've never seen it, it is, you know, one of the greatest music series that I've ever seen.
0: Is that, is that, is ice T involved in that? Um, He
1: was in it, and Shad was the host for all four seasons. And
0: okay, so I'm thinking of another series, uh, another hip hop history show that I that he that Ice T hosted. Oh yeah, um,
1: Ice T was definitely uh, interviewed in it. But the thing about it is, Hip Hop Evolution to me, and I had nothing to do with it. This happened before I stepped over to Banger, but um, it was really one of the first times that hip hop was seen through almost an anthropological lens and a critical look of what happened, how did it happen, and really talking to the players that were there. And so that got a lot of awards, Peabody Award, Emmy Award, and just was really respected. So there was an ask for are there other shows that we could, you know, Banger could look at other genres of music uh, in a similar way. So I think a few were pitched and people asked about it and the pop one sort of landed. And so originally our show was going to be called Pop Evolution, but just as things happen, we changed the name to This Is Pop, and here we are.
0: Yeah, so um, so where was the project at when, when you came on board?
1: It had been greenlit, which for those not in the biz means somebody said we'll pay you to make this thing and you better deliver it (laughs) and that's where we're at there had been some research done into what are some episodes that would make sense um, and some initial research of like okay what are the eight episodes and what films are we gonna do but that was about it and i came on and we just started uh with there's a small team that just got bigger and bigger as we figured out the pieces of the puzzle and I came on, and we figured out which directors would direct. Um, you know, who's going to be the directors? What episodes are they going to direct? And as we dug into the episodes and what they had already figured out, plus what were we missing? Um, that took a lot of work. Even before we got to camera, that was months and months and months of work of talking about what stories should we actually do. The thing about pop music. It's, you know, it's a vast ocean. It's like, where do you start? And what is pop? And who do you talk to? And where do we even start? So it was, um, yeah, it was pretty bonkers uh, thing, yeah. thing to even undertake.
0: <laughs> I- I'm sure. Well, that was going to be my next question, actually. I mean, what is pop uh, as far as you see it?
1: You know, it's interesting because we talked about it so much in the office with the amazing writers and um producers and aps and everyone that was around that was a question that we got to pretty quickly because you know pop was something that really it it really brought up people's taste pretty quickly and also it really brought up what people didn't like pretty quickly so for a lot of people pop music is awful it's saccharin, it's bubblegum, it's garbage, it's top 40. And if you're a real music fan, you do not like pop music, which I have to say, I totally disagree with. Um, and for some other people, they thought pop was what they grew up listening to. And that means whatever, and that's depending on how old you are. So if you're 40 pop music to you is probably very different than if you're 30, than if you're 15, than if you're 75. But, So as we're talking about these things and realizing what stirred things in us, whether it was positive or negative or how it made us feel. And this is a room full of like music journalists and filmmakers. um, Mm -hmm. We realize that pop is something we have to give it its due. Pop is popular music for a reason. If you're a music, a musician or a real music nerd, or you just love genre, you probably still love pop music. Maybe the music you like was considered pop at one time, and now it's considered underground or forgotten. But um, for a lot of people, people just never thought of any pop music as something to even think about, that it was maybe disposable. What was in the top 10 one week, you know, the next week might be displaced by something else. So we really struggled with what are the kinds of sounds that we want to explore, and what are the eras we want to explore. And as we expanded, realizing for a first season of a show, we should probably do the whole gamut. So we looked at probably the late fifties as our start point uh, up to 2020, when we started, stopped production, 2021. And, um, and we wanted to make sure that we had pop music from all the eras in between those years. And that really opened the doors to us, like the Beatles are pop, the Rolling Stones are pop, the Shangri-Las are pop, Justin Bieber is pop, Childish Gambino is pop, Boys to Men are pop. So as we realized through the ages how the sounds changed, we were able to really embrace an idea of what pop is that maybe is different than what you would think of when you hear the word right away.
0: Right. Okay. So there's so much in what you just said. I'd like to go back a little bit. So um Why did you decide on the fifties as a starting point?
1: That's a good question. Um, we really wanted to do in our research and also for those people, including me, um, that have thought about this maybe for a while, we really wanted to do a story on the Brill building because it's Mm. this magical place. If you don't know it, it's a building that still exists. It's 11 stories high, uh, on Broadway, just north of Times Square. And if you ever watch Saturday Night Live at the end of it or any Lauren Michaels production, you'll see that Broadway Video is the Mm -hmm. um, production company that makes all those things. Well their office is in the Brill Building and there's a reason that he was there because at one point in time it was like the epicenter of everything that was amazing (laughs) in the entertainment industry in New York City. and. Where people might have heard about Tin Pan Alley or the old composers of the 20s and 30s, the composers of the 50s and 60s had just moved uptown a little bit to this building known as the Brill Building. And at one point, I think we, in our research, we figured out in the early 1960s, all 11 stories of this like midtown building in New York City were, it was completely filled with music businesses. I think there were 160 around that number, businesses in this one building, publishers, um, artists, places, managers. There were recording studios. Um, What's her name? Carol King recorded there, Neil Sedaka recorded there, Burt Bacharach's office was there. So people of a certain time that were really dominating the charts were all coming from one hallway. So if you look and they would compete with each other to see who would be top 10 that week. And it was pretty interesting to realize that it was actually just this community, like you hear about any scene in any town or any group of musicians that do things now. There was a scene in a town on this one block in New York City for a good number of years, maybe 10 years. So we wanted to explore that. And as we dug into it, we realized how many layers of history were there and how many layers of history were gone because in the 60s, post British invasion, post the rise of television, you know, the music industry and the film industry went to the West Coast and that sort of started the downfall of the Brill. But there are still some magical moments that happened in the years after that. And I would say that for a lot of people, even if you've never heard of the Brill Building, you've heard many 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 songs that came out of it whether it was that you were alive at the time you're older and you remember those pop songs or for most of us you probably know them from like movie soundtracks so anything that's like the shirelles or the girl groups or any of those sounds that's all from the brill so Mm -hmm. we just felt like that was sort of the dawn of the music that came out of the brill was the dawn of a new kind of music making It was aimed towards teenagers where before that um, music wasn't really aimed towards teenagers because teenagers weren't really a thing. You know, it was only in post-war America, really, that leisure time started to open up. Kids didn't have to be working. People weren't getting married at 17. So there's this whole new group of people that needed to be entertained and had different ideas. And so that was starting to be reflected in the music that and that was the music that was coming into that Mm. place. So that just became through our research a really good starting point, and it informed a lot of the other ideas that came after that.
0: Yeah, it's funny you should mention uh, Carol King because I knew she was a br- Brill Building songwriter, um, but just yesterday I was speaking to someone who was kind of like in the in the course of like slagging off uh, someone who she perceived as like overly mainstream she compared her to to Carol King like sort of compared her derisively to Carol King and I was kind of in the back of my mind going like I mean I I have a lot of respect for Carol King uh, as a songwriter but like it's kind of funny it was kind of funny uh, to me in that moment to uphold her as this symbol of artistic authenticity when when she came out of uh, of the of that Brill building, you know, songwriting machine kind of scene, and just like to be clear on my own perspective, like I don't, I don't really see a a, a distinction or like a sharp difference between like having artistic integrity and being a like a a, a hack pro songwriter. Um, but uh, anyway, that's uh, that's just kind of an aside. So, um, but uh, on, on that topic, you said that when you were developing the show. There were some people who thought of pop as like inherently bad. Um, Why do you think people have that perspective?
1: It's, you know, it's interesting. I've thought about it a lot, partially in talking about the show, but really it was just even internally uh, the group of us that was putting it together. I don't think I've ever worked on anything where there was more personal, (laughs) personal, struggle and I'm not saying my struggle all of us to realize a common ground to what is good and what is bad Mm. and I think a lot of that has to do with pop being sort of the domain of young people or the domain of girls and I don't think that's exclusive but I would say that teenage girls for the most part over time love pop music and Mm -hmm. maybe you know when I was growing up um when I was a teenager, maybe it was boy bands were huge if you were a girl. And if you were a guy, grunge was huge. Those mm-hmm. you know, two things would have come out at the same time. So if I were 13 year old girl and I love Backstreet Boys, my older brother probably would have loved Pearl Jam and thought my music was garbage and Pearl Jam was authentic and amazing. But, you know, and I was looking this up both in research and also recently, they were both on the Billboard Top Ten at the same time.
0: Yeah, well, I would, I would, you know, go a step further than that. And I remember when when Limp Biscuit was huge, um, they, uh, they, they, they sort of dominated the market of that, you know, angry teenage white boy um, kind of demographic. And I remember at one point, like, they were contrasted with Britney Spears in a similar way, but they were actually on the same label. So it's like, you know, the, the the label is kind of like playing both sides against each other and like collecting money from both.
1: Well, exactly. And it's, you know, it comes down to taste. And also, if you haven't developed your taste from, you know, there's a lot of people that have flipped through records in dusty, vi- you know, vinyl stores. But most people aren't doing that. Most people are listening to the radio and understanding music through what's being fed to them through music videos, through the radio, now through Spotify, through TikTok, whatever. So most people want it curated for them and would understand time and eras in their lives as to what music was going on around them. All that music that was going on around them would, I think, is considered pop music. So I I don't know, there's lots of reasons that I think people have found it dismissive. I think people that think about things that are cool. And I'm doing air quotes. You can't see me. Air quote, cool. I always tell people to (laughs) watch
0: out with the air quotes. This is a a strictly audio format.
1: Exactly. Well, then I'll say cool with like a knowing wink. It's like, what is cool? And is something that's mainstream automatically not cool or good? Um, You know, pop music and popular music reaches a lot of people and means a lot to a lot of people. And I think just by that very nature, the cultural critics or people that have a platform because they study or care or in the music industry may look at that and say, well, if it's mainstream, there's nothing artistic to it. There's nothing authentic as it's meant for a popular audience. I think we're in a period of history now that that's really being questioned. I think there's a whole new way of thinking about things. Some people call it pop poptimism. Um mm-hmm. But a whole new way of looking at things that why do things need to be, I don't know, underground or unknowing or only kept by a certain few to have cultural cachet? And why can't mainstream pieces of culture also be worthy of talking about and criticism? So yeah, I feel like pop. this show is really falls into that. We want to offer up, Pop music in a way that you can talk about it as an art form and as a piece of pop culture in a way that I don't know is as serious as anything else.
0: Sure, I mean I I, I agree. I I think that like I, I always try to understand where people are coming from, and I and I I think that when people um, you know dismiss pop music, in a sense, I mean it's true to some extent that pop music is what is you know quote-unquote fed to you like it's on the radio it's on the tv it's on it, it pops up in your in your spotify whether you you asked for it or not um and it's and it has this big machine behind it um and so like there's a certain type of personality that just resists that and i completely understand that because i had or probably still have to some extent that personality um, where I'm just like, what, you want me to listen to this? Well, I'm not going to. Mm-hmm. But but just, again, speaking strictly for myself, like I know deep down that when I was a teenager and pretending that I only liked super underground things, which I genuinely liked for the most part, I secretly also liked a lot of the stuff that was on the radio. Not all of it, but a lot of it, I was like, you know... I actually enjoyed that music, and I think that um, you know, it, it's it's a different way of looking at things because, like, some people might say, uh, "Oh, the fact that pop music is so constructed and the songs are written by committee in some cases means that it's not an authentic, you know, artistic expression." Which is like, you know, there's perhaps some validity to that perspective but you know i don't know i just always think like i mean frank sinatra didn't write his own songs mm-hmm. elvis didn't write his own mm-hmm. songs like do we think of them as lesser artists because they sang other people's songs like it doesn't really make sense if you unpack it um and th- the fact that a. Uh, that a song might be written by committee, or that, or that there might be a, like a massive marketing operation behind the promotion of a record, it, it is an interesting fact to take into consideration. But it d- doesn't really affect the inherent value of a song or how it makes people feel.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Like you know, especially going back to the Brill Building and the reasons for its decline, it was really pinpointed in us from. Beatles being on Ed Sullivan, and suddenly the Mm -hmm. Beatles being a group that teenagers were looking to, and the difference of people singing songs that were written by songwriters, which is a noble profession that people have done for a very long time, um, Mm -hmm. to suddenly artists needing to sing their own songs, that it was just night and day. And with the rise of folk music turning into mainstream, like Bob Dylan, those people singing their own songs and that being seen as authentic and people singing things that were written even specifically for them as being totally garbage. And it's interesting because I think that rise, that's like parallel to so many other things in society in boomer times of the rise of the individual and not wanting to go with uh, the crowd and just wanting to do your own thing. Um, I think all those things were happening at the same time. And I feel like there have always been uh, songs on the radio forever that were written by other people. There's very few artists that are known that are specifically writing their own songs. Um, And of course, there are many artists that you look at the credits and it's like, oh, there's 26 writers on this. Like, I don't know how you'd ever split that publishing. But yeah, but does it make it as you were saying before, does it make it less of an art form? I I don't know. I, I do think there <laughs> I think songwriting and being able to express your own writing is a huge thing. But I don't know if a, an artist could perform a song written by somebody else. And if that is has no value, I totally disagree with.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a, to, to me, it doesn't really make sense if you unpack it. But the other thing that I think people don't really realize is that you know it's true that successful pop artists tend to have like a big uh promotional and marketing machine behind them but like uh perhaps this is uh less true today in in when when things can be so uh quantified and 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 algorithmically studied and everything but certainly like in at various times there have been artists or groups who put out songs and records with a pretty huge marketing push behind them, and it just didn't connect with Mm -hmm. people. And I mean, and I know this for a fact. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen to people I know. It's a thing. And so when people say, oh, you know, this music is just popular or these people only like it because it's all over the radio and and there's a uh, marketing push behind it, I'm like, I don't know. Like, it's true that there is. But there has to be something that connects with people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like there are a lot of unsuccessful, you know, one hit wonders or no hit wonders, because no matter how much marketing money was behind them, they just couldn't connect.
1: I totally you know, it's in in, um, in one of our episodes uh, called When Country Goes Pop, which is about crossovers and the notion of authenticity in music, um, which is pretty, you know, in in-depth episode, we have a guy named Chris Scruggs who actually came on um, as an expert, but as a musician in his own right. And he was talking about Shania Twain and he had a really good line where he was talking about her collaborations with Mutt Lang when she exploded with Come On Over Uh, Mm. and The Man in Me. uh, He said, that music may not be your cup of tea, but it will make your ears feel good. And it's just mm. there's a there's something in pop music that you know lots of artists are listening to the radio or listening to and are consumers of culture and know what's going on just like um, listeners or viewers or people that would be consuming their art and you know these people are professionals they are studied musicians they people work on lots of different music and try lots of different things. And it's often not one person in their basement just testing something out. There's, you know, a room for collaboration. And so a lot of these songs that come out and, you know, there are, of course, songs that are, I don't want to say by committee, but have a ton of people on them. Mm. And maybe they feel a bit mechanical, but the real bangers (laughs) that you hear everywhere that make you want to dance or might become a guilty pleasure, quote unquote, because you don't want to be seen as liking pop music, but you'll still listen to that song all the time when you're working out or out for a run or something. Um, You know, there's something to be said for the craft of creating a song and performing a song. And it doesn't have to be minimal. Like, you know, there's lots of production in pop music that you would never hear in indie or singer songwriter but there's also lots of production pop music that will bleed over into other genres because it feels good and sounds good and audiences and listeners want that kind of sound right so yeah it's it's hard to say there's it can get into a a slippery slope of what is art when you're talking about pop music but there the fact is that pop music is the one art form where you can really Identify the time that it comes from. There's, you can listen to a song and know how are people dressed at that point. How do people dance? What were the social issues of the day? What do people care about? What's the vibe? That's the reason that you hear pop songs, all movie soundtracks, to establish a time and a place. And it's not because somebody suddenly knows, oh, it's 1971 March the second, you know week in march it's because they it will paint a picture much more directly than any other art form
0: yeah it's really funny that you would mention the year 1971 because i when you were saying that earlier i was just thinking about a time when i i had a rental car that had satellite radio and i was listening to satellite radio and somehow i came across a station where they were just playing the top 40 from 1971 like a certain week in 1971 yeah. and it was really cool because they had I think like at least two songs from The Stones Sticky Fingers in in the on the chart. They had James Brown's Hot Pants, which was basically just like a wild groove with him like screaming the title over and over again. And then they had all these like really treacly pop songs with strings and stuff and it's kind of like I don't know if it was the last vestiges of like a 40s 50s pre-rock and roll pop sound or if it was a 70s throwback to that but you could really see like why you know why punk rock was necessary to kind of shake mm-hmm. shake that up because I actually I have I I have a a great appreciation of of soft rock but you could see how like if this was what's on the radio all the time like it was necessary for there to be a, like a course correction or something.
1: Well, totally. And you know, this is a conversation for another time, but it's interesting looking at charts because, you know, charts, uh, expanded and contracted and changed. We actually, we spoke to a billboard chart historian in our boys to men episode. Um, who's, so his main vibe is deconstructing the charts over the last, you know, 80 years or however long they've been around, but, oh yeah, but it's, You know, there's so many filters on charts because sometimes it would only be the charts of what was played at one point. Radio stations were heavily segregated. Right. And they still are to some degree. But um, Mm -hmm. so the charts would only reflect what mainstream pop slash white radio was playing and really missed out on possibly um, lots of songs that were being played on other types of radio stations or in other types of record stores, but only really counting a certain market. Um, And it was actually in the early 90s when the pop charts shifted to actually reflect with the records that people were buying, not just what uh, radio stations said they were playing and what record Mm. stores would say they were um, selling. It was when it was scanned with a barcode. That is actually a huge... Plot point in, in our Boys to Men episode because that's how they became number one. They maybe it wasn't cool to love Boys to Men, but you better believe that everybody was buying their record and they catapulted to number one because that's actually what people wanted to hear. And it just wasn't what cool gatekeepers or record store people uh, would be re- reporting back of their sales. It was actually what people were buying and listening to.
0: That's really interesting. Um, I wanted to go back a little bit because you you mentioned Shania Twain earlier and uh, and she's always kind of been an interesting bellwether of, um, you know, a very mainstream artist, a very pop artist who nonetheless was kind of like a crossover artist from country to pop. And then uh, do you uh, did you get into her, her Bollywood album at all? Um,
1: we we mentioned it in the episode. I actually was lucky, you know, in in the series, I did some interviews, um, but mostly the directors would of each episode would do the interviews. But I was lucky enough to interview Shania Twain myself. And she was amazing, (laughs) like so smart and so generous and just really had a lot to say. And we could only use so much in the app like I'm dying to do more. Um, But Yeah, she put out her album up in three different formats, the regular, the pop format, the rock format and the international format, which I actually have never heard um, the international format, but I've read a lot about it and I've heard that it's just amazing.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so, so for those unfamiliar with this, yeah, I mean, it's the same record. The same songs, but in three different, um, you know, quote unquote genres, country pop and then sort of Asian pop or Bollywood. I've heard it called Bollywood. I haven't heard it either, actually. Apparently, you can find it on Spotify. But, um, But I love the idea. I mean, it sort of implies that the difference between these genres is like purely semiotic or something because... As far as I know, she's doing the same vocal takes, or maybe not. Maybe she threw in some twang, extra twang for the country one, or who knows. Um, But it's just, yeah, the same songs with different arrangements for different markets, basically. And it's kind of just like, you know, if you respect that kind of world-dominating approach to pop, it's a really genius move that I don't think anyone else has, has, has tried.
1: It's funny. I actually asked Shania because of the the notion, you know, the the premise of that episode, as I was saying, is about authenticity and about when a country song goes pop, the country world um, isn't happy because there's a sense that it's not no longer authentic and it's no longer, uh, quote unquote, country enough. And Mm -hmm. that happened to Shania. That happened to Wynonna Judd. It happened to Tanya Tucker. It happened to lots of people, but the genesis of that episode was talking about Little Nas X and Old Town Road when it Mm -hmm. hit the country charts and then got yanked off the country charts that spurred us wanting to do that episode because that was happening when we were in um, pre-production that, you know, if people are listening to it and considering it a country song, doesn't that make it a country song? Why? Who are the gatekeepers to say that Old Town Road isn't a country song? And it was only when Billy Ray Cyrus came on to give his, you know, nod, yes, I'm a country guy and I'll sing on this remix. And, um, and then it went back to the charts that it was actually accepted as a country song, which is totally crazy. So I was asking Shania about that and about what was happening to her when she was doing Crossover. And she said, yeah, it's a lot of gatekeeping and the industry is way behind where listeners are. There was, you know, in her time, and, you know, I'm not saying her time isn't now, but when she was crazy rocket hot going up the charts um, with Come On Over, uh, at that time you couldn't play two women back to back on country radio. It just wouldn't happen. And so, mm-hmm. and there, you had to have a very certain sound. So when her sound started or was pretty early developed, it was, she didn't change that drastically. But her sound was seen as too pop for country airwaves however fans liked it enough that it became huge and i think she's still the best selling female artist in any genre and partially that could have had to do with the multiple versions of up but she's you know a huge superstar and people just made her huge because of people liking that kind of music so yeah i don't know i don't know if people think in terms of genre honestly like I think you might think that way if you go to a certain section of the record store or you're scrolling through Spotify and trying to find something new to listen to. But I think that people are pretty agnostic when it comes to that and they just like music that appeals to them, that makes them feel a certain way. And I don't think people mind if um, things sound poppier or more country or more metal or more acoustic than they're used to.
0: You would think, but but of course, all those all those uh, subgenres have their uh, absolutists, right? Um, although it's it's strange in the case of country because uh, you know, I mean, I heard first of all, it's kind of an age old thing. Like I I remember reading on the liner notes of a Skeeter Davis record that her producer Chet Atkins um, was told by someone that if he took out the steel guitars and replaced them with strings. Uh, the songs would chart on the pop charts as well as the country charts, uh, so it's like again, it's this weird semiotic thing where just changing one instrument uh, changes the the perceived genre. But today, I, I was I, I was surprised when the when the Old Town Road thing happened as well, partly because country is so cu- country has sort of like uh, bled over into into R and B so much. Like, I remember I was flipping around the channels in the car at one point a little while ago, and I heard some music, and I was like, oh, it's cool that this auto-tuned R&B song has, like, a fiddle in it. Like, that's kind of interesting. And then when the vocal came in, I was like, oh, it's it's not R&B, it's country. Like, this is what country sounds like now. <laughs> Do you know what I mean?
1: It's pretty wild. Yeah, I... Um... I th- it's partially from you know researching and working on this show but because I was working on the show I was traveling a lot which meant I was in a lot of Ubers or rental cars in different cities for the last couple of years and yeah I've heard a lot of music that I would never have heard before and yeah the rap country R&B country zone was totally new to me and it was surprising the first time I heard it too.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's surprising, but in a way it's a, you know, it's as old as the music business. It's just sort of the, the, or, or, you know, the crossover between these, you know, black and white American cultures. It's, you know, it's what gave us like almost all, uh, pop music. Um, okay. So, uh, let's talk a bit more about your show. Like what, um, there's eight episodes and what, uh, can you quickly break down what what the subjects are?
1: I sure can. So, yeah, the first episode was Auto-Tune, which was pretty amazing. The director Jared Rabb and he um, really looked at Auto-Tune as this cultural force of what is it? It's a story about the software and how it disrupted music, but it's also the human story behind it of why T-Pain, and we... Sp- spoke with t-pain spent quite a lot of time with him why he used it in the way he did how that changed music and what he was trying to do by using it as um as a you know creative tool so it that was a pretty amazing episode to do we also went down to puerto rico and spoke to the very rich very interesting inventor of autotune um oh, wow. and wh- how and why he invented it and it was just like well, man like you unleashed a beast and he's just this you know very kind bit weird but very kind uh you know technical minded engineer guy that just his brain figured out how to do it pretty quickly episode two is called hail brit pop and reg harkema was the director of that one and oh, yeah. that was a pretty cool one you know it's that episode took a lot of twists and turns when we were making it, but essentially it's a story of this moment in time known as Britpop, where the two biggest bands that most people would know out of that jar of music um, were Blur and Oasis, and they were really pitted against each other at the time, and even now, really, as being the two faces, the good and the evil, the North and the South, the like working class versus the posh blokes, that kind of vibe. And people really took it as an identity politic. Are you an oasis person? Are you a blur person? So we talk about that, but we also look at Britpop in a broader way, which was really the rise of lad culture in the UK and beyond the women of the scene and the women that were a part of it, but also really excluded from it um, because of just the way that, that era was being branded and us being able to look back on it 25 years plus, um, in the future, just, you know, what was good and what was bad and what killed it. So that was a pretty cool episode to do. Our third episode is, um, on Swedish super producers, which oh nice, like we were talking about before, it's, you know, these are the guys that are banging out the top 10 all the time. Um, so, people like, people, people might know Max Martin's name, or Shellback is a huge producer. Um, and they came out of, you know, you might not think of them as coming out of a scene at all because they're in producing people like Adele or Taylor Swift or Pink or whoever. Mm-hmm. Um, but they really came out of this small scene in Stockholm. And it's a pretty small crew of people in a very tiny studio which we went to the original studio that everybody was working in and it was i don't know how to describe it very small um and really the history of that how did the swedes take over the pop charts where did it start um and who were these players so we trace you know everyone to Childish Gambino people know Donald Glover but his creative partner is a guy named Ludwig Göransson, who is Swedish and who was heavily influenced himself by Max Martin. Max Martin was an engineer on Backstreet Boys and Britney Spears's first album which was done which were both done in Stockholm and the reason those were done in Stockholm was because some guy at Jive Records um, in the States heard Asa Bass's Uh, music and thought this is Mm -hmm. a sound that I want to give these young guys that are just starting and haven't recorded anything so we trace it all the way back there plus we spoke to Benny from ABBA which was a huge coup because he doesn't do any press and Mm. he was into us you know tracing that Swedish uh, dominance so we had a pretty amazing (laughs) time with Benny and yeah it's um it's pretty cool episode and I don't think anyone's really dug into it that much, but it's a, it's a really neat, um, anthropological history.
0: Cool. And so those are the episodes that have, uh, that have aired so far or that are
1: well, depending on when this is airing, I'll say that episode three, the Stockholm one is actually tomorrow. So, um, it'll be, be available by the time anyone hears this, uh, to watch. And then yep. there's five ones after that. And I'll, I don't know, be more quick about them, but the next one after that is on uh, boys to men boys to men effect. What happens when you become world number one and where do you go from there? And so we spent a lot of time with boys to men and charted their rise and fall and the various reasons that they became number one and the various reasons that they were no longer number one. Mm-hmm. Um, The following episode after that, I mentioned before, is When Country Goes Pop. Following that, we do our Brill Building episode, and we look at the Brill Building through four songs and try to give an overall picture through these songs that you probably know and speak to the different facets of what the Brill Building was meant to do, what it actually accomplished, and its legacy. So that was pretty cool. We actually spent a lot of time with andy kim i don't know if you know andy or met him but
0: but he's uh i don't i don't know him personally but i know who he is yeah
1: he's amazing and he's a montreal guy and when he was a teenager he made his way down from montreal to the brill building was taken in by a songwriter jeff barry there and his most famous song i think that he wrote um through the brill was sugar sugar and so we actually brought Andy to New York and went to the Brill Building. And he took us around and he told us his memories. And um, he was a real, you know, amazingly generous guy. And it was, you know, just, it's a really emotional story because the Brill is more than a building. It was really this community that was there. And Andy is one of the last people around, really, that's um, that came out of there. But also, I think the day before we spoke to Andy, we spent some time with Neil Sedaka on the uh, Mm -hmm. Brighton Beach boardwalk. And it was really crazy because he's so famous to older people. So we had some (laughs) real fawning teenage girls plus 70, add 70 years to that, um, (laughs) freaking out on him on the boardwalk. And he was just, I don't know. Just this amazing guy. So he told us lots of stories about the Brill and about um, being a teenager himself and working in the Brill building and having chart hits, writing songs for teenagers by teenagers, which was really what was happening at the time. Um, and following that, we've got a, a episode called "What Can a Song Do," which is really about the protest song. And okay, um, we spoke to everyone from Chuck D. Uh, talking about Fight the Power to Arlo Guthrie talking about his dad Woody Guthrie and This Land is Your Land to Hosier who had a big hit with uh, Take Me to Church and the protest elements to that song and the question we had for all of them plus others in the episode was what happens when a song a protest song or a political song goes mainstream does it lose its message or you know does it Is it more powerful? And I honestly thought that people wouldn't, you know, Chuck D might not like fight the power being used for like Levi's commercials or I don't know, things that are not political. But everybody said, and you'll see this in the episode, the more people that hear the music and the art form, um, the wider the message can spread. And so it was really fascinating talking to people all, cons- all people that charted on the pop charts or that would be in the pop realm, um, but very different genres between them, Riot Girl, folk singers, etc. within the episode. And just how much it means to, how do you actually get your music out in your message, but also what is the role of the artist in terms of creating things and putting it out there. Mm. And then our final app, which uh, we're actually just putting the finishing touches on right now because you know these things take a long time is um mm-hmm. is on festivals and so we're in the middle of shooting and then COVID happened which was mm-hmm. you know kind of harsh so we had to repo we were supposed to be embedded at Bonnaroo stay intense, be down there really soak up the vibe of why do people go to festivals and immerse themselves and take all the drugs and live in tents and you know that's their one thing they do for the year um but we couldn't do that because we couldn't do anything so we but we had already done a ton of shooting and spoken to people that had founded lots of festivals we went to glastonbury spoke to the founder of glastonbury at the farm we went to la and spoke to michelle phillips of the mamas and the papas who founded the monterey pot festival along with um, her husband mm. at the time, and we spoke to many other people, the founders of Bonnaroo, etc., cetera, um, about why do they do it? What is a festival? How is it, we think, a mirror to culture reflecting what's going on in society is really what you would see reflected in festivals? And also, with the specter of COVID over it, um, what is it about gathering for a single purpose of music that makes it a different experience than just listening to music or even going to a show in a club. There is something about that commune that means something very different and is really primal. So we explore all those ideas in that episode. It's, um, you know, making it, it was pretty crazy that we had to do it distanced from each other because we're really talking about Mm -hmm. how important it is to be together. But yeah, it's a pretty um, interesting episode and it looks at Festivals in a way that I think haven't been talked about before.
0: Cool. Well, it sounds like such an interesting show. I I was really uh, intrigued by it when I first uh, saw it pop up uh, on, you know, Instagram ads or wherever it was I first caught wind of it. And then um, I just, I mean, I thought it would be interesting to talk to you about it, and it sure has been. Um, I wanted to ask you just uh, before we wrap up, Um, you know we talked about um, people who are uh, you know against pop music um, and you said you don't feel that way Uh, did you ever go through a phase of like being in denial about liking pop music or have you always been an enthusiast (laughs)
1: yeah it's funny you know I've just been with COVID still around I've been doing a lot of reorganizing of my record shelves and bookshelves and everything so I just was doing that the other day and You know, looking at my vinyl collection, I do have some Mariah Carey. Don't think I don't. But most of what I have is pretty, I don't know, not pop oriented. Like there's a lot of Brazil, a lot of um, stacks and R&B and Brazilian music and rock and roll and that sort of thing. Um, And my friend's records, of course, they're all there. But so I'd say I have a very limited pop realm on there. Um, although I would say that lots of it might've been considered pop maybe 40 or 50 years ago. So I wouldn't say that I'm a huge pop fan that I'm listening to a lot of top 40, but I do love music and I love pop culture. And I also, I've become way more open. I mean, I think I learned more about boy bands in the last two years of my life than I ever did, than I ever knew, even though I knew the songs, because I lived through it the first time. Um, Mm -hmm. Just understanding it, just having a different lens on music that I think has been easily dismissed over the years, especially music of the last 25 years, 20 years, anything that was meant for younger people is seen, I think, as disposable. But when you just... Don't let yourself dispose of it and look at it and try to think, well, what is this? Who is listening to it? Why is pop music called a guilty pleasure when you just love a song, but you don't want anyone to know about it? I just think we're in a time that you're allowed to actually like something and not have to be ashamed of it or you shouldn't really be throwing shade. So I don't know. It's really opened my eyes, even though, yeah, I was doing the show and I believed in everything we we're doing, but it's, I I've really come to love and realize that there's a whole world of pop music that I never even really knew. Or if I had heard it, I hadn't really heard it in a way that made me love it. Um, mm. And so I love it even more now. There, It's really kind of special. And if you take mm. away the I don't know angry record store guy vibe that a lot of us have um and just let yourself love things because they're purely good uh i think people would find a lot to love in pop music and if you realize that there are stories and people behind each song that you hear there's so much to know and love that it's um there's a lot of stories still yet to be told
0: cool well amanda thank you very much for talking to me uh it was uh It was very fun, and I wish you all the best with your show. I look forward to checking it out.
1: Yeah, thank you, Malcolm. I really appreciate it.
0: That's our show. Thank you for listening. If you're interested in checking out This Is Pop, go find them on social media for information about uh, where to see the episodes. And uh, you can also check out the playlist that the producers put together for the series on the What Is This Music homepage or Facebook page. If you like the show... You can always go and give us a rating, leave a review, and uh, spread the word. Tell a friend. If you know anyone who might be interested, pass it along. Thanks for listening. See you next time.